We have to realize that agriculture is extension of ecology. Yes, it's, so the two domains in which we operate is actually the same domain. And my main interest is how we can improve our ability to utilize effectively, but also sustainably, natural resources. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Well, hello there, and thanks for joining me today on the Genomics Podcast. On our show, we talk with leading scientists and clinicians who explain how genomics is impacting our health and our environment. In today's episode, which is number 55, we'll be talking about the impact of genomics on agriculture and ecology. Agriculture is the science and practice of farming plants and animals for food or fiber or fuel. And it's no exaggeration to say that agriculture has sustained and enhanced human life for literally thousands of years. But more recently, our changing environment and expanding human population is increasing the demand for more productive and more sustainable agriculture. The good news is that advances in genotyping, which we'll talk more about today, have helped to develop crops and livestock with more desirable traits. And these traits are things like higher production value or stress tolerance, or even disease resistance. So to talk more about agrogenomics and ecology, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Anjay Killian to the show. Anjay is founder and director of Diversity Arrays Technology, a high-throughput genotyping company based in Canberra, Australia. Listen to Anjay explain how he uses NGS-based genotyping to help develop better and more sustainable agriculture practices. Anjay Killian, I want to welcome you to the Genomics Podcast today. Could you just kind of describe your background and how you became involved in applying genomics and agriculture? Yes, my background was pretty much from the beginning of my uh, research uh, career in genetics, mostly plants. So my PhD some nearly 40 years ago was actually researching a small weed Arabidopsis. After PhD, I went to Cambridge, UK, did my, let's say, postdoctoral fellowship at uh, Plant Breeding Institute. I studied uh, genome constitution of weed and ballet, did uh, participate in the first uh, release of a transgenic plant, uh, potato trial. Then, after coming back to Poland for, for about a year, I went to the United States. Most of my work there was about barley genome again cloning uh, genes for disease resistance. About 30 years ago, that was the early stage of attempting cloning genes, especially an organism like ballet that has a very large genome. Right. So, so uh, what I, I developed this trick of using small genome cereal rice that, that is about 20 times smaller in the genome size compared to ballet to clone an important gene for resistance to a particular fungal pathogen. So some of the technology that we'll discuss today has applications in, in uh, genotyping. And for our audience, can you kind of describe what we mean by genotyping? And especially in the context of agriculture, you know, what, what do we mean by genotyping in agriculture? 
And why is genotyping so important in the context of agriculture? Yeah, so uh, genotyping, maybe you can say that it's performing a molecular assay to determine which nucleotide or uh, one of the ACGT letters that your um, listeners would be familiar with, the building blocks of DNA. And the genotyping assay would determine which of these four bases sits in a particular position in the DNA. So you can have a genotyping assay testing just one location in the genome, or our genotyping assays, most of them would be testing hundreds, thousands, or tens of thousands of the locations across the whole genome. The importance of genotyping in agriculture is very similar to its value and, and applications in any other domain, biomedicine, for example, genotyping a human being where uh, life is priceless is very different from genotyping a, a plant like barley, for example, or, or, or um, wheat, where the unique value of the plant is minuscule compared to the plant. So in a in a value uh, systems, you may say plants are probably least valuable than you have maybe farm animals that are more important. You can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for a good bull, but then human life with no value. Yes? So that cost equation really figures into what technology you have available to you for genotyping plants. Definitely. You need to be very nimble you know, with your approach. You can't use the same methods that are okay in biomedical research to service the clients that do not have that much resources. So I think a lot of our listeners are probably familiar in general with array technologies, particularly what we call single nucleotide polymorphism or SNP arrays. And to construct those arrays, you know, typically you'd need to have some DNA sequence data. So you, that's where you identify these SNPs and, and that SNP information is what you use to construct that array. And like you said, for a human where you know, value is not part of the equation, we have lots of sequence data available, even for some model organisms like mouse. But can you talk a little bit about why array technologies are a little bit more challenging for crop plants or for agricultural animals? Yes, yeah, uh, definitely one of the main problems is access to re relevant sequence information. Yes, the second challenge in agriculture context is also phenomenal diversity in the material that we have uh, to handle often. Humans are extremely inbred, as we could say. We have very small frequency of genetic variation in our DNA sequence. Therefore, it's much easier to construct the assay to determine a particular building block in a particular position because you not have this negative effect of too much variation in the other building blocks ne nearby. Yes? And, and in that context, constructing effective array technologies for many agriculture organisms is much more challenging than doing it for humans. So let's talk about that a little bit, about the technology that you developed. It's called Diversity Arrays Technology, or DART. And you developed that as a genotyping platform particularly in cases where you know, genomic data, DNA sequence data, is not really available. How does it work? That actually dates back to my time in the United States in Washington State University, where I was trying to clone this unfortunate gene that I mentioned at, at the start of our conversation. And at that stage, apart from using the genotyping technology called RFLP, Restriction right. Fragment Length Polymorphism, is an ancient technology. Yes, it is. Uh, it shows your age, if you, remember, <laughs> if, if you remember. The RFLP technology, when combined with 
concept of genome complexity reduction resulted in in my mind in in the concept of of dart and what what it means that instead of uh, characterizing the whole genome you take a snapshot of the whole genome by using in our case by using a combination of restriction enzymes those are these molecular scissors or snippers that will chop dna into very discrete and very repetitive manner defined fragments mm-hmm. And then you select a subset of those fragments for further in investigation. So you can drop, let's say, 99% from the whole genome. And the 1% of the fragments from the whole genome may give you still a very thorough description of the molecular profile of the whole genome. Yes? Oh, I understand. For yeah. many applications, you don't need to have a complete genomic sequence to find what is important and how to improve crops or animals. Particularly so, for genotyping, you don't need all of that information. Exactly. So the complexity reduction is one aspect of it. And the initial technology 20 some years ago was to combine it with an array platform. Yeah? So mm-hmm. we actually used a fairly generic open source platforms. This was really democratizing technology in a sense that we could start and developing much better technology for unknown weed or any new crop much easier than for humans, mostly because most of these organisms would have more sequence divergence than humans. Right. Therefore, our technology would be reporting on, on thousands of markers without learning anything about sequence, underlying sequence information. So that's the original DART technology, the array technology that, that you developed. And then I've read more recently, you've, you've started incorporating next-gen sequencing or NGS into the genotyping that you do. And you've kind of combined this concept of DART with NGS, and you've created a method called DART-seq. Can you describe DART-seq? Yes. So we often describe uh, DART-seq as combining DART complexity reduction method with NGS. Yes? So it's, it's a change of platform. The actual concept and the, the general approach does not change. We still have fairly uh, very scalable technology, meaning that we can take either small or medium or large fraction of the genome for the diagnostic assays. But instead of cloning into bacteria and then getting those DNA fragments and doing all the hybridizations, we go directly to the sequencing. The change was triggered by dramatic drop in the price of sequencing. Right, I was going to ask you, you know, what precipitated that. This coincided exactly with uh, the genome analyzer from Illumina uh, was the precipitation of this change about a decade ago. In 2009, 2010, this is the beginning of this dramatic three or four year period when the prices of sequencing were dropping uh, by logs. Right, yes? right, yeah. So still at 2009, we could deliver cheaper assays on the array platform compared to the sequencing platform. But around 2009 and 2010, we rolled out that set. So the purpose of incorporating the NGS into this workflow, is it just to make the workflow faster and cheaper? Are there other reasons for doing it? There is two reasons. One is the cost reduction. The other one is increased resolution of analysis. I see. Yes, because there is an, actually a third element to it. Because with the that seg approach, by sequencing those restriction fragments, we can identify SNPs. Our DART platform was actually based on SNP variation, but also indel variation, insertion deletion type of variation, and then was read, read as a 
absence or presence of a signal, fluorescent signal on the array. But when you sequence those fragments, we, we were getting a SNP information for within the fragments. But interestingly, apart from reporting on SNP markers, we also report on, on things that we call silico dart markers. So we still <laughs> drag the, the old dart um, terminology into our new platform. So when we're reporting data from DartSeg, we provide people SNPs, but we also provide these silico dart markers. What silico dart markers are, they are those presence absence polymorphism that we were able to re report before. So in the past, we had to see presence absence by looking at the signal for fluorescence. Right, right. Here, because of the fragmentation pattern is based on genetic factors, sequence divergence, yes? Right. Indels some structural variation or sequence divergence. So we, we are reporting on, on this additional information, including on methylation changes. Our method of complexity deduction is a very special one that is eliminating practically all repetitive sequences from our libraries. Yeah? So uh, that's we, a big we have deal in, plant, in crop plants, right? It, in crop plants, it's a phenomenal deal because the amount of uh, repetitive sequences varies enormously amount crop plants and plants in general from, let's say, 100 megabases in Arabidopsis to wheat, for example, that has 16 gigabases. Wow. Yes? So you're, you're looking at a 160-fold difference. But actually, the amount of the coding sequences and the amount of, of genes in, in those uh, two organisms varies only maybe f two to threefold. Ah, yes? I see. Once you chop off all the repetitive sequences, you're left with very similar size, low level of methylation genome. And therefore, you reduce phenomenally the cost of sequencing to get the valuable information about genetic material that you're characterizing. Yes? So our uh, complexity reduction method I often refer as a metal filtration. Through using methylation-sensitive enzyme, we remove all the repetitive sequences and report only on these, or mostly on these genic regions. Oh, I see. Can you use DartSeq in the context of genotyping humans as well? I mean, is there something about agriculture that makes DartSeq particularly suitable for that application? We do DartSeq in well over 1,000 different organisms, and oh, wow. only probably no more than 30 to 35% are plants. Really? In the last uh, more five to six years, we added uh, at least 1,000 different organisms ranging from predominantly animals, but there is also things like uh, various microbes, uh, fungi, oh, a lot wow. of fungal genetics. But Animal research, part of it is aquaculture or agriculture genomics for crop for farm animals. But our biggest growth in terms of rate of growth is in ecology. So the range of applications of these technologies is very broad and way beyond agri agriculture. So you founded this company about 20 years ago, I think, and it's called Diversity Arrays Technology. So, you know, that's quite a long time and that's fairly early in the whole, you know, genomics revolution. Why, why did you feel that it was important to start your company back then? What, what applications were you focused on? What, what were you trying to accomplish with your company? It's interesting. I never had a single bone as an entrepreneur. Yeah, you're not zero <laughs> interest in making money or and and technology interest. Yes, but uh, I assumed after inventing that, I assumed that we will find a commercial partner who will deliver it, and I'll stay developing technologies because I, at that stage I was working in a public non-for-profit that we set up with a friend long time ago. Unfortunately, there was no taking up of this technology by commercial 
partners because we had a rule in this organization that we deliver technologies only on non-exclusive basis. Oh, I see. There was therefore no driver or, or at least no a company was interested in uh, taking it up. So for, for some time we were searching for a solution to this problem and finally I said, okay, I'll do it myself. And <laughs> jumped across uh, the ditch and, and became an entrepreneur. Still mostly driven by a perception that there is a significant value and opportunity in the technology that I invented and therefore wanted to prove it by, by doing it. I uh, was very fortunate to have at that time with me a very small team that jumped with me and, and we set up the company. I have to say that we are an unusual company and I would say that we are much more social enterprise than a normal company in, in, in a sense that a lot of our work is about training. Uh, we had probably 200 people who came uh, through this company, most of them from lesser developed countries uh, who are being trained in, uh, right now, not strictly in performing the technology, but interpreting uh, what's the value of, of doing that. So a lot of training in interpreting and analyzing data. At the same time, to understand our company completely, I would have to say that our training is expanded beyond just training people here, but also sending trained people to their continents so they can deliver our technology locally. So we have uh -huh. one platform established at uh, Mexico and another one more recently with large grant from Gates Foundation in Kenya, in Africa. That's where the, our social enterprise component comes in. We're very interested in contributing to food security issues, to poverty alleviation, all those important social, social challenges that we're facing in the 21st century. It might be surprising to a lot of our listeners that these high-tech genomic data analysis approaches are being applied to agriculture. What has been the impact of society to have you know, big data genomics being applied to agriculture? How has society benefited from that? Undoubtedly, one of the biggest benefits is the supply of the new seed, mostly through international corporations that have sufficient investment, not only in data production, as we said, but also data storage and analysis. And therefore, if you look at the yield of maize, the crop that attracts the biggest investment, then there is a clear lift in the rate of genetic gain after these technologies have been implemented. I'm mostly talking about genomics, but also about novel data analytics and, and the software for handling all these data. So the rate of genetic gain is now close to 1.52%, which is nearly double what, what it was before. Yeah? Wow. So, so this clearly is improving the yields. The big change is also in animal research and uh, genomic selection applications where, where the genomics-driven prediction of the phenotype based on the DNA profile has already made a dramatic change in the way we breed cattle, especially dairy cattle, but also pigs and other uh, farm animals. So that's, that's probably the fastest change in terms of technology. You've talked about how these high-tech approaches, data storage analytics, DNA analysis techniques are now starting to have an impact on agriculture. Looking forward over the next five or 10 years, what excites you about the future of applying this high technology to the agriculture sector? What do you think the future will look like for agriculture? Yeah, so there's maybe two ways of answering your question. One 
purely on a tech- technological side, I would say the, the excitement is in the area that, that we're investing ourselves, meaning data mining, deep learning, application of AI, and capturing the value of this digitization of all the agricultural field. Yeah, so from environmental sensor data to genomic data or other type of data that are being collected and underutilized. So it'll take some time to accumulate good quality data, right. then cracking the code and then deploying the, the value of it. So that, that's definitely uh, of great interest to me. My big area of interest in is in crop diversification. I think that we have to face into a lot of challenges for the future and, and monoculture and linked problems will probably be increasing this time. So, but there is the other way of answering your question is more on a social level. And I think that we have to realize that agriculture is extension of ecology. Yes, it's, so the two domains in which we operate is actually the same domain. And my main interest is how we can improve our ability to utilize effectively, but also sustainably natural resources. And we very often are presented with this apparent contradiction between agriculture and ecology. So it's very important to remember that that agriculture has to coexist effectively with the ecology. Right. Yes? And and I think that we'll be thinking about the challenges, how, how the technology can find some sort of solution to this conundrum. Yeah, we uh, have to produce more food, but we cannot eliminate arable land by growing bigger houses. Yes, but, And this challenge will stay with us f- for a while. Anjay, I want to thank you for joining us and talking about this. I think this is a really fascinating topic. I personally had no idea that agriculture was being impacted and transformed this way by application of genomics and other uh, high-tech things. Thank you for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like today's show, why not subscribe to the Genomics Podcast? You can find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can even ask your favorite smart speaker to play the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Join me next time when I'll be talking with attendees from the Association of Molecular Pathology Conference in Baltimore. We'll be discussing cancer and comprehensive genetic profiling right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast.